Lisa, you could start. Good afternoon and welcome to the Code St. Luke edition of CBC Canada Reads 2022. My name is Lisa and I'm the host this afternoon. For the second year in a row, this program is taking place virtually, so I want to give you an outline of how the event will run. This year's theme is One Book to Connect Us. Each defender will have about five minutes to talk about their book to convince us why theirs is the one book that best fits the theme. I will be keeping time and will let the defenders know when they have about a minute left. Following that, I will ask each of them a question about their book, and later they will also have the chance to tell us what they didn't like about their books. Finally, based on what we've heard from their fellow panelists, um, we're gonna find out which book they would eliminate from the running. Uh, we'll then give you, the audience, the chance to ask any of the panelists a question. You can do this by writing in the chat or in the Q&A box. If you wanna ask your question out loud, please raise your Zoom hand and we'll unmute you so that we'll be able to hear the question. While question period is going on, I'll also be asking those of you who are able to vote for the winner to do so. We will announce the winner at the end of today's program. Uh, the order in which we will hear from our panelists was already predetermined. So without further ado, our first defender is Jen. Thank you, Lisa. Told in the form of his people's oral tradition, Thomas Mueller's debut life in the city of dirty water is a national bestseller. It is a story of survival against systems of oppression, addiction, intergenerational trauma, as both his parents were residential school survivors and about finding healing and highlighting his Cree experience. He writes about his upbringing in Winnipeg, which translated from Cree means dirty water and how he began healing by using prayer and participating in his culture. The author writes about his life with honesty and vulnerability, recalling the many challenges of growing up skinny, queer, and forcibly urbanized by the development of mega dams on his ancestral territory. This memoir is broken up into five chapters called Flight, Warrior, Water, Healing, and Fire. They describe how Clayton moved around a lot with his mother but was never very close with his birth father. He had a loving relationships with some of his other family members who tried to help him change his destructive path he was on and who taught him a love for the land and his Cree culture. Maleness and anger are major themes as he learns to work through a childhood of domestic and sexual abuse, racism, poverty, homelessness, gang life, juvie, and substance abuse. His stories are dark and heartbreaking, but they show how he leveraged his life experiences to become the activist, warrior, and global thinker he is today. In the latter part of the book, the author reveals that anger can only take you so far. The danger is that it burns so brightly, but doesn't really affect any change. To heal, he had to learn how to turn anger into resistance and bring his warrior spirit to the fight against the ongoing assault on Indigenous people's lands by big oil companies. By his early to mid-20s, Thomas Mueller had already been involved in the Tar Sands campaign with IEN, which is the Indigenous Environmental Network, and the North American Indigenous Delegation to the World Summit on Sustainable Development in Johannesburg and 350.org, as well as many other organizations. While discussing his work with these groups in the book, the author makes a rather poignant observation that many Native groups are divided and how much better things would be if all the energy we devoted to fighting each other could be directed at solving the problems we all faced. To put it in the author's words, the easiest way to lean on us is to exploit our internal divisions. There are many in our tribal council who think they can be in both worlds at once. They think the priorities of global capital can be reconciled with the priorities of the land. 
but you can't be Indian and the Iron Horse at the same time. The result is that families are divided down the middle. Councils are divided down the middle. If you want to conquer, first divide. This is why we must remember that everything is connected. Clayton, and his, Clayton is an award-winning film director, media producer, public speaker, and best-selling author on Indigenous rights and environmental and economic justice. He is involved in many initiatives to support the building of an inclusive global movement for energy and climate justice. He has been recognized by Yes Magazine as a climate hero and is featured as one of the 10 international human rights defenders in the National Canadian Museum of Human Rights. In addition to the book, there is also a documentary called Life in the City of Dirty Water Short Dock. The film premiered in 2019 and went on to win the Best National Short Film Award at Montreal Cinema Sur les Étoiles. The Canada Reads theme this year is one book to connect us. The CBC is exploring, exploring stories that inspire readers to reflect on community and who we are in the world we live in. Life in the City of Dirty Water best represents this theme as it, it is an inspiring and important memoir about the author's work on some of the most critical issues of our time, Indigenous rights, nationhood and healing, and climate justice. I would like to leave you with this short expert excerpt from the Life in the City of Dirty Water. I had become disillusioned with school and was getting into consistent arguments with teachers, especially social studies teachers, about what they were teaching about Canadian history. Why did the social studies books have only two pages about Indigenous peoples? Social studies is taught in bizarre little tidbits as though Canada had not been a collection of Indigenous nations before colonization. I began to argue with teachers who didn't appreciate having me challenge them in front of the whole class. I would debate the curriculum they were teaching. I began to fight with school administrators who didn't appreciate my disagreeing with them. I was angry and I started to get into trouble. I knew I was spiraling, but I couldn't tell. Was the world a mess or was I? Or was it both? Everything was going to shit. I knew I had to protect something precious, but I didn't know what it was. I knew there was something better than the drugs and the fighting and the anger and the stupidity. I knew I was heading in the wrong direction, but I never lost sight of that beautiful thing, whatever it was. Every day I would wake up and tell myself, this is not real. I'm not in this situation. People don't really hate me this much just because I'm native. I'm not really this much of a loser. This is all only temporary, but things would be much worse before they got better. Thank you. And now I turn it back to Lisa. Thank you. Perfect timing. So next up is going to be Mairead. Thank you. I will be championing, championing Five Little Indians by Michelle Good. Published in 2020, the novel was long listed for the Giller Prize and in 2021, it won the Governor General, General's Award for English Language Fiction at the 2020 Gigi Awards. The author, Michelle Good, is a, of Cree ancestry and she is a descendant of the Battle River Cree. Her great-grandmother participated in the 1885 uprising at Frog Lake and her uncle, Big Bear, was a powerful and popular Cree chief who played many pivotal roles in Canadian history. Good is a member of the Red Pheasant Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. She has been working with Indigenous organizations since she was a teenager. At the age of 43, she obtained her law degree from the University of BC to better serve her community. Now retired, she practiced law in the public and private sector, primarily advocating for residential school survivors, Although Five Little Indians is fiction, some of the episodes were based on real experiences of her mother and grandmother, who were both survivals of Canada's residential school system. Residential schools were government-sponsored schools run by churches. 
The schools were created under the Indian Act in 1886 with the goal of educating Indigenous children, but also the more damaging goal of indoctrinating them into Euro-Canadian and Christian ways of living and assimilating them into mainstream white Canadian society. An estimated 150,000 children attended residential schools between 1831 and 1996. An estimated 6,000 children died at residential schools. They died from disease, malnutrition, neglect, and they suffered physical, psychological, and sexual abuse. In 1920, it became mandatory for all Indian status children to attend the school. If parents did not agree to send their children, they were forcibly taken from them. Attendance was compulsory until 1969, and the last federally funded school closed to close was in 1996. In total, over 130 residential schools operated in Canada between 1831 and 1996. In 1931, there were 80 residential schools operating in Canada. That was the most at any one time. I would like to read a short paragraph from the Indigenous Foundation's website. Residential schools systematically undermined Indigenous, First Nation, Métis, and Inuit cultures across Canada and disrupted families for generations. Severing the ties through which Indigenous culture is taught and sustained and contributing to a general loss of language and culture. Because they were removed from their families, many students grew up without experiencing a nurturing family life and without the knowledge and skills to raise their own families. The devastating effects of the residential schools are far reaching and continue to have a significant impact, impact on Indigenous communities. The residential school system is widely considered a form of genocide because of the purposeful attempt with the government, from the government and the church to eradicate all aspects of Indigenous cultures and life worlds. Five Little Indians follows five former Mission BC residential school students. It explores the physical and psychological trauma they endured as students in the remote church-run residential school and their efforts in the years following their release from detention to overcome and live with the damage they endured. The story is told from each character's unique perspective. Kenny, Lucy, Maisie, and Clara, Clara and Howie are taken from their families when they reach school age and spend the next decade or so in the school having no contact at all with their families. They are barely out of childhood when they are released after years of detention. They are given a voucher for the bus and a few dollars and they are sent out into the world without any, of, any idea of what to expect. Alone and without any skills, support or families, the teens all eventually make their way to downtown Eastside Vancouver where they depend on one another for security, a sense of family and belonging in a world that looks down on them. We first meet Kenny. He is the hero of the residential school. He stood up for the other kids and he took many beatings for that. Kenny's repeated attempts to escape the mission are eventually successful. He steals a boat and makes it back to a home that after seven years has transformed beyond recognition. As an adult, Kenny leads a transient life, working on fishing grounds, orchards, and logging camps, trying to outrun his memories and his addiction. Lucy is a naive girl who was released from school at the age of 16 and left to fend for herself. Having little knowledge of the outside world, she reunites with Kenny and they eventually marry and have a daughter. Even though she has developed some obsessive compulsive behaviors, Lucy pursues an education in nursing and finds meaning in parenthood. Maisie, a witness to Lucy's abuse at the school, takes Lucy in when she arrives in Vancouver and helps her get a job. On the surface, Maisie is strong and wise, 
but she has a self-destructive side. Maisie, having also been abused at the school, juggles civilian and sex work, but ultimately cannot cope with the ensuing shame and stigma. Clara finds solace in the pursuit of justice and becomes involved in the American Indian movement, and later with the Native Court Workers Association, which offers counseling to Indigenous peoples. And finally, there's Howie, who had been the most cruelly victimized of the group. Howie serves hard, hard time for an impulsive act of brutal revenge against one of the mission brothers, strives to learn to live in a world in which he has known nothing but institutions. So how does this book tie into this year's theme of one book to connect us? The support of the characters and the community for one another is at the heart of this story. It gives the novel a heartwarming feel. When you encounter people that have endured a similar trauma, you create a community. And that's what these five characters were to each other. They drew support and understanding from one another. Although the themes in this book are heavy, the overall feel of the book is hopeful and uplifting. When Michelle Good was practicing law and representing former students of the residential schools, the story started taking shape and she came to realize how much Canadians and Canada at large did not understand the impact that attending these schools had on people like her mother and grandmother. By writing this as a novel, instead of writing a memoir or a nonfiction book, she felt that it would be more accessible and it was something that we as readers can engage in. And that's why I think this book is so important and is the one book to connect us. Thank you. Wonderful. Up next is Maria R. Tough act to follow. Hi, I'm Maria Rizina, or Maria R. Uh, I am defending What Strange Paradise by Omar El Akkad. Omar El Akkad is an author and journalist. He was born in Egypt, grew up in Qatar, moved to Canada as a teenager, and now lives in the United States. The start of his journalism career coincided with the start of the war on terror, and over the following decade, he reported from Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, and many other locations around the world. His work earned a National Newspaper Award for Investigative Journalism and the Goff Penny Award for Young Journalists. His fiction and nonfiction writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Guernica, GQ, and many other newspapers and magazines. His debut novel, American War, is an international bestseller and has been translated into 13 languages. <clears throat> it won the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award, the Oregon Book Award for Fiction, the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize, and has been nominated for more than 10 other awards. That's the other novel. It was listed as one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, Washington Post, GQ, NPR, Esquire, and was selected by the BBC as one of the 100 novels that changed our world. His short story, Government Slots, was selected for the Best Canadian Stories 2020 anthology. What Strange Paradise, the book I'll be defending today, was published in July of 2021. It's the story of two children finding their way through a hostile world, but it's also a story of empathy and indifference, of hope and despair, and about the way each of those things can blind us to reality. So a little summary of the book. <clears throat> it's hard to read because it's so sad. More bodies have washed upon on the shores of a small island in Greece. Another overfilled, ill-equipped, dilapidated ship has sunk under the weight of its too many passengers, all of them desperate to escape untenable lives back in their homelands. But miraculously, someone has survived the passage, nine-year-old Amir. Resilient and desperate to survive, Amir escapes the authorities sweeping the beach. He is soon rescued by Vana, a teenage girl who, despite being native to the island, experiences her own sense of homelessness, as tourism has changed the landscape of her home to render her a commodity in her own home. 
Though Vanna and Amir are complete strangers, Vanna is determined to do whatever it takes to save the boy. The book's chapters jump between the time before Amir arrives on the island and the after, which begins with his meeting Vanna. The novel doesn't shield its reader from the hardship of the human condition, especially for those seeking a home in a hostile and unforgiving world. The adult characters we meet are damaged and struggle to maintain their humanity. There are various nationalities, ethnic backgrounds, and religions, but their displacement challenges us to see that being in the same boat, when it sinks, those things don't really matter. This heart-wrenching novel becomes even more so in light of the faces of the many children shown in the media in recent weeks. It's a novel which presents a sliver of hope in a hostile world for those of us seeking sanctuary and paradise. And because of that, I believe that it fits uh, this year's theme of one book uniting us all because when you are in the same boat, in the same storm, it doesn't really matter who you are and where you come from because your circumstances unite you. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Our next speaker is Antonella. Hi. As you know, this year's theme is One Book to Connect Us. My book, Washington Black, written by Essie Adoyan, is definitely a book all of Canada should read. In fact, I feel strongly that this book will inspire readers to reflect on community and who we are in the world we live in. Despite it being set in the, in the past, the themes certainly resonate in the present day. Washington Black tells the story of George Washington Black, known to everyone as Wash. Wash is born into slavery on a Barbados sugar plantation in the 1830s. He has felt the cruelty of his masters and has seen the violence with which other slaves are treated. At 11 years old, he is chosen as the manservant of his master's brother. He is initially terrified. To his surprise, however, the eccentric Christopher Wilde, otherwise known as Titch, turns out to be a naturalist, explorer, inventor, and abolitionist. Titch treats Wash as his research assistant, and under Titch's tutelage, Wash's talent for nature drawings begins to flourish. Soon, Wash is initiated into a world of science where a flying machine can carry a man across the sky. The two develop a bond, but when a man is killed, and Wash is the leading suspect with a bounty placed on his head, dead or alive, Titch must choose between his family or saving Washington's life. And the choice results in an unforgettable adventure. They abandon everything and flee together. The two make their way across the Atlantic, traveling up the east coast of the US, up into Canada, and eventually to a remote outpost in the Arctic. Over the course of their travels, what brings Wash and Titch together will tear them apart propelling Wash even further across the globe. I will not spoil how they get separated, separated, but they do part ways. Alone, teenage Wash finds his way to Nova Scotia. During the second half of the novel, Wash tells us of his time in Nova Scotia, followed by his transatlantic travels with the family he met at the, as they researched aquatic life together. Once in England, he and the scientists who befriended him in Canada create the world's first living aquatic museum. All the while, Wash continues to chase answers from his past and has a secret relationship with the scientist's daughter, Tana. Wash roams the world with Tana from London to Amsterdam and then on to Morocco. And along the way, we learn more about Titch's twisted family and witness how Wash tries to build a life for himself, pursuing his interests in science and art and finding love. All of this is intriguing as an adventure novel, 
But what Aduyan's writing really excels at is how it so vividly portrays the hardships Wash has to endure. Because even when slavery is abolished, racism, of course, persists. Wash struggles with his identity, constantly forced to investigate the gap between his own potential and what society sees in him. The writing is particularly strong when Aduyan writes about the psychology of her characters and what drives them. For instance, the question arises, why does Titch decide to help Wash? Is he a good person? Then how can he, the white upper-class scientist and abolitionist, finance his endeavors with money earned by his family's plantation? Sometimes it seems like Titch himself doesn't know the answer to that question. Essie Edouin is a magnificent, magnificent storyteller. Edouin writes about the important topics of racism and identity, but in an accessible form of an adventure novel told chronologically and in the first person. She does a fantastic job with imagery as her characters travel across the world. It is a story that will make you think, it will make you angry at times, and in the end, it will make you feel. But don't just take it from me, others more literary than I concur. Among its many accolades, Washington Black has won a Giller Prize and was also a finalist for the Man Booker Prize. And for all the reasons I have just given, I would like to ask that you vote for my book, Washington Black by Essie Adouyan, to be the uh, winner of the 2022 Canada Reads Coast and Luke edition. Excellent. And our last defender this afternoon is Maria Luisa. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Well, as Lisa said, my name is Maria Luisa Morales. And as many of you know, I am one of the librarians at the library. And I'm happy to be here today to tell you a little about the book that I am defending, Scarborough, written by Catherine Hernandez. Or I should say, I should say Hernandez. This captivating read is set in the city of Scarborough, which is a highly diverse neighborhood made up of many different boroughs and communities, East of Toronto. The book is set in the Kingston and Galloway area specifically a diverse and resilient community, which like many inner cities, suffers under the weight of poverty, addiction, racism, violence, and crime. Interestingly enough, this book was made into a movie, which was presented at the Toronto International Film Festival last year. Hernandez takes on the task of representing the community where she has lived for most of her life in all its diversity with love and respect. Scarborough, the novel, is told in a series of vignettes from the perspective of different characters over the course of four seasons, fall, winter, spring, and summer. Each chapter begins with the name of a character, and we will see through the eyes of that specific character. The books follows mainly three children attending the neighborhood's public elementary school. Through their lives, Hernandez calls the reader to attention and reveals the crucial necessity of outreach programming. Bing is a kind-hearted, overweight, and sometimes bullied Filipino boy looking to succeed away from his father's abuse and mental illness. He's intelligent and insecure. At the end of the story, 
he's accepted into a program for gifted children and is finally free to express himself. He's an endearing character in the book and has full support from his mom, Edna. Sylvie, another character, is an outgoing indigenous girl whose family is struggling to make ends meet. They live in a shelter. Sylvie befriends everyone she can. She has a shiny personality, loves to tell stories, and eventually would like to become a writer. Her mother, Marie, figures prominently in her life. Laura is a neglected shy girl. She was first under the care of her mother and now is with her father. Both parents and the system fail her. She breaks your heart with her fragility and innocence. These children develop a friendship among themselves. Each of their stories has the potential to stand alone, but here they are connected through their community and the before school local literacy program they all attend. In that classroom, they are free to express themselves and join together to lift each other up. At the center of this safe space is Ms. Hina Hassani, the understanding and supportive program facilitator of this Ontario Reads Literacy Center, who deals with racism and bureaucracy as she tries to make a difference. These families are at their most honest and sometimes lowest moments, but the author always presents them with sensitivity and compassion, making sure to demonstrate that many of these parents deserve our attention and understanding. This is one book to move readers to connect to others fitting the theme of Canada Reads. This year's books will remind readers that we are all connected and that we are stronger when we come together. We can work through hard things and find the hope we need to keep going, says Ali Hassan, the host of the BBC Canada Reads this year. So in keeping with the theme of Canada Reads, one book to connect us, this book reflects social issues that affects us all. Poverty, mental illness, alcoholism, racism, prejudice. The author is showing us that we need to be more in tune with each other. Community matters on a humanistic level, regardless of rich or poor. Scarborough is one of those rare books that says a lot about connection and community by showing how helping each other can make a difference. We are left with a feeling of hope that some of these families will be able to break out of poverty and that Ms. Hina, the frontline literacy worker and others like her can make a difference in these families' lives. There is hope that these kids and their families, no matter the challenges they face, will be all right. It is an emotional and powerful read. It is a story about the importance of public education, generosity, courage, hope, and connection. That's all I have to say for now. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so now I'm gonna ask you each a question about your book. So I'm gonna start with Antonella. Uh, Washington Black showed us that slavery is a stain on human history. Today in 2022, there are many groups suffering under the oppression of cruel governments and leaders. Why does the narrative of these experiences continue to be important? 
But thank you, Lisa. So there is no arguing that slavery was a horrible chapter in human history. It was brutal, cruel, heartless, and it is something we need to read about and remember, lest we make the same mistakes again. But let's not kid ourselves, however, into thinking that we are so much more evolved and civilized that there is no oppression on our time in our time. It continues even today, for not perhaps not always in such a physical and obvious way as the violence and aggression of slavery, but let's face it, it hasn't gone away. An example is in China, where the Chinese government has been committing crimes against humanity and genocide against the Uyghur population in northwestern China. Unfortunately, the curtain put in place by the government to impede communications makes it hard for us to really see what's going on. All we have are the stories from those who have managed to escape the area and satellite images of the villages before and after they were destroyed. Uh, obviously, what also comes to mind is what is taking place in Ukraine right now. It is clear to all, uh, except those who only have access to Russian propaganda, that this, uh, this is oppression of the most extreme kind. Uh, the, and the war is being broadcast live for all to see, televised live on news channels and streamed live on social media. We are bearing witness to the barbaric actions of the Russian soldiers following their government's orders to relentlessly destroy towns, cities and lives in the, in the process. I can go on with examples of oppression, both past and present, but I won't. You get the picture and can likely come up with your own long list. My point is that I think it's important that we all read more novels such as Washington, Washington Black, set in past and present day oppressive societies with heroes, heroes and heroines as identifiable and lovable as Wash. Why? Because these books allow us to see and understand albeit with fictional characters, what it is like to be oppressed. And when we can understand it, the pain and the wrongness of it, my hope is we might stop the cycle that continues it. Thank you. Maria R. What inspired Strange Paradise? What's Strange Paradise? So according to an interview with the author, what Strange Paradise is supposed to be a fable or a rewriting of Peter Pan? but inverted from the perspective of a contemporary child refugee. It's actually not immediately obvious when reading the story until I read the interview, I wouldn't have guessed it on my own. But once you start seeing the parallels, it is kind of inextricable. It's about a child that uh, never grew up or never has to grow up or wants to grow up. Two children escaping from cruel adults who are also trapped on the island. So those parallels actually become obvious once you are aware of them but when I read it on my own, I wouldn't have known. So my guess of the inspiration and most people's guess of the inspiration, I would assume, would be that famous photo of the little boy who had been washed up on um, an island uh, near Turkey on the way of the Kurdish three-year-old child. I have his name written down, Elan Kurdi. Uh, that, so I believe that that image must have inspired the author, although he never mentions it in interviews. But I think it's an interesting uh, commentary on the fact that he was writing a fable, which then turned out to be a commentary on uh, global action and global media and global news. And it becomes so much more contemporary now as we watch a new flood of refugees moving across the world and how much it, or how little it impacts people, even with all that knowledge. Thank you. Maria Luisa, um, how are women depicted throughout your story? Are they described in a realistic way? 
Yes, they are described in a realistic way and Hernandez celebrates women in her book. The book recognizes women as pillars of the community, many of them caregivers and educators. In its most sympathetic portrayals, three adults stand out. The Filipino mother, Bing's mother, who escapes an abusive relationship with Bing on toe and works long hours in a nail salon to provide what little she can for her son. Marie Bedouin, the indigenous mother who takes care of her two children, Sylvie and Johnny, and a husband with a disability. Sylvie is a healthy and helpful child, while her brother Johnny displays early signs of autism spectrum disorder. His mom is trying to navigate the healthcare system for her son, who has been previously dismissed by a doctor who assumes Marie cannot handle the diagnosis and the behavior therapy that would likely come with it. So while the children, despite their circumstances, still have an innocence about the world around them, their mothers are fully aware of the obstacles that they face. Another character, Ms. Hina Hassani, the program facilitator who runs the literacy program out of the local elementary school, serves as a kind of anchor point with connections to these kids and to their families. Through her eyes, we witness the impact of poverty on education. We see the influence of hunger and neglect. At the same time, through her generosity of spirit, we see the power of community. There are some female characters who are portrayed in an unsympathetic way and which gives balance to the book. As Hina's voice, uh, sorry, Hina's boss, the racist and heartless administrative supervisor who interferes with Miss Hina at every turn. An out of touch woman who works downtown and never visits the center but fills her, her emails with uh, ill-fitting advice. Or Laura's mother, who falls prey to her addiction and ends up leaving Laura in the equally incapable hands of her father. It feels rewarding to track these women's progress because you see that they eventually find in, um, support in each other by the end of the book. And overall, I can say that the book focuses on the strength of women and their relationships with each other. Thank you. Mairead, uh, your book was written from the point of view of five different characters. Why do you think this was intentional? So normally I, I would have difficulty keeping track when there are too many characters in a book. You can't follow all the storylines. Um, but I think in this case, it worked very well. Um, Michelle Good has said that when she was writing the novel, she looked at all the different forms of abuse that students experienced while they were in the schools. And then she looked at all the reasonable outcomes of those injuries and what a person could expect and how their lives would unfold after that. If you look at two people who are abused in a similar fashion, they might deal with the trauma in different ways. Um, in the book, we see that Howie becomes very angry. And, and vengeful while Lucy develops um, OCT tendencies and Kenny has difficulty staying in one place for very long. And eventually he, he does um, unfortunately succumb to his to, to um, alcohol related illness. 
when um, Michelle Good, she really wanted to make sure to cover all of these uh, trauma-related injuries that continued throughout the rest of their lives. And, and that's how she was able to do it. She was able to do it by following these five characters and the different forms of abuse that they they endured and the different outcomes, um, how their lives, how it affected their lives differently and, and the outcome at the end. Okay. Jennifer, you're the only one with a work of nonfiction. What have you learned after reading this book? Um, <clears throat> thank you, Lisa. Of all the information presented in the book, what has really um, stayed with me the most despite is despite all of our efforts to be more culturally aware and sensitive to other people's traditions, uh, we still inadvertently are imposing our ideas and opinions of how things should be, so to speak. Um, why does society feel the need to reshape, <coughs> excuse me, and remold people? Um, maybe the focus should be on how we integrate people into something while maintaining their identity instead of wiping it away so that we are more comfortable. Interesting. All right. So now um, I'm going to ask each of you to tell me what you think is a weakness in your book. So Mairead, would you tell me something that you didn't care for in your book? Okay, so as perfect as my book was, um, I would say that the dialogue was probably not the strongest part of the story and the writing at times could be a little bit simplistic. And there were also instances where the book shifted from first person to third person. Um, but I don't think that impacted the importance of the story or my enjoyment of it. And I think everyone should read it. It's a very important book. Okay, Maria Luisa, what about you? Well, in my opinion, the last chapter in my book takes an unexpected turn into the, uh, in the plot, which is very surprising. The author evidently wants to tie loose ends in Laura's story in a positive way. For me, it does not fit with the reality of the previous chapters. This is not a witness, but a surprising twist at the end that the reader may like or not. Interesting. Okay, what about you, Antonella? Um, I, uh, I found my book very compelling. The writing style flowed easily and the character's journey through life uh, unspooled in unexpected twists and turns. Some of the depictions of slavery uh, were dark and brutal, but luckily the book doesn't dwell there and the hope is never lost, even though it is occasionally strained. Uh, the characters themselves are complex and multi-layered, but the ending is a bit of a head scratcher for me. And I, I can't quite decide how I feel about it. I'm not going to give any more details away because I would be spoiling it for those who haven't read it yet. All I will say without divulging too much more is that the final chapter felt a bit rushed and improbable. I was left wondering what really happened in the end as it seemed uh, washed, abandoned it all, his lover, his hope for the future, his scientific work. In any event, despite these quibbles, uh, let's keep in mind that it is fiction and still a truly fascinating book start to finish. Yes, I would have preferred a cleaner ending, but the life lived out in these pages is anything but clean. So why would the ending be? All right, Antonella, I know what you mean. And uh, Maria R, you're up last. So we just have to hear from you now. Yes. So because for me, because the book is told from the perspective of a nine-year-old boy, uh, and maybe because the intention was that it be a reworking of a fable, 
Some of the topics go a little bit underexplored. Sometimes it's not clear on go ahead. Of the motivations of some of the adults in the story. And uh, there was one moment in particular that really bothered me where the character, because it's written from his perspective, everything happens around him. But there is one scene in which I think the editor forgot that that was the limitation of the book. And they have two adults having a conversation where the child has left the room and isn't anywhere within earshot, but they're having a discussion. And it seemed to be there to progress the plot so that the reader can understand something that a nine-year-old wouldn't. But it did throw me out of the story for one small moment, and I will point that out. Okay, so um, all right, panelists, uh, here is your last chance. I think you're read. forgetting me. That must mean I have oh, no weakness sorry, in my Jennifer, book. Sorry. <laughs> that must mean my book is perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's all right. Go ahead. Um, I'm reluctant to say that there's a weakness when it comes to someone's memoir because it is such an intensely personal thing. Um, you have to be very courageous to write your story and share it with everybody as it gets published uh, thousands of times. Um, but that being said, it's not told in a linear fashion. It is five chapters, but they do tend to skip around a little bit and it doesn't progress like other works do, like A followed by B, then C. Um, so this book doesn't really do that. Not everything is explained to you, the reader, when you want it to be explained to you. Like the story does get there. It just may be not how you'd like or how you'd expect it to. But um, as others have said on the panel, it doesn't really impede your enjoyment of the book. Um, it doesn't take away from it. It's just a little bit like, oh, wait a minute. You read something in chapter four that you would have expected to have been presented to you in chapter two. Okay. So now, panelists, this is your last chance to convince the audience, based on what you've heard from our other defenders, which book you should feel uh, you feel should be eliminated from being the one book to connect us and why? So Maria Luisa. This is a very difficult question to answer, to tell you the truth. Particularly, I find this year the books are very, they have been very well chosen. But anyhow, I would, since I have to do it, I would eliminate life in the city of dirty water. Sorry, Jennifer, but it's because of the style, of the writing style. I, I'm not taking anything away from Clayton Thomas Mueller, who is an impressive man. It's just uh, that um, the writing style seems not to flow for me. That's all. That's the only reason. All right, um, Raid. So I'm gonna go the opposite and I'm gonna say um, Antonella's book, Washington Black. Um, like Maria said, all the contenders this year were really strong. I just felt that her book just kind of slogged on a little too long and I didn't finish it. I felt it was just a little, just the, the, the second half just dragged on way too long. And it was published in 2018. We'll just throw that in. Okay. Um, Antonella, your chance. So um, as Maria, Maria Luisa had said, uh, this is a very tough question. All the 2022 contenders uh, fit the year's theme very well. And all are important stories that need to be told and really should be should all be read. Um, so how to pick one to be eliminated? Um, some would say, like Maria, that Washington Black should be the one on the chopping block. 
um, because it's not new, published quite a while ago. Um, and in fact, when I heard Washington Black was on the list, I must admit, I thought, I thought the same thing. Really, that old book? Uh, that being said, another book on the list is actually older. So um, as ridiculous as that, as a reason as it is, I will vote for Scarborough. Sorry, Maria Luisa, it was uh, written a year earlier in 2017. But you will be able to see the movie only now. Okay. <laughs> which is a great movie to watch. <laughs> All right, Jennifer, which one would you eliminate? Okay, so I have two things to say. So firstly, I'm going to rebut Maria, a, a, trying to vote me off, Maria Luisa, that is, I will say, yes, you're right. This, this book did get some criticism online for the writing style. And you're right, because if you read it at the end or somewhere in the interview, he wrote the first draft and the publisher said, yeah, no, 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 this is not going to fly. Take this away and rewrite it, which he did. But the thing that I want people to, re to remember, if hopefully they pick up the book to read it, is that it is he is coming at it from the tradition of an oral tradition, which is the, the culture, the Cree culture, which is an oral tradition. It's the storytelling tradition. So very much when I was trying to say what I thought maybe what was one of the weakness was, is it doesn't flow in that linear fashion. It does actually have a very um, non-linear feel to it. It is very storytelling-like. And uh, I'm trying to get my hands on it, but apparently if you actually listen to the audio book, uh, of this book and and you not don't read the print but go to the audio version apparently it's fantastic it really takes on another layer because it uh, taps into that storytelling tradition um, as for my vote um, sorry Antonella it's Washington Black and uh, not for the reason of it being old um, I really uh, similar to Maraid I found it was a very epic novel that gets just pulled into too many directions both in terms of the plot and the geography and I find I found that it tried to cover too much uh, and a lot of the emotional and the cultural weight of the novel just gets a bit lost sorry <laughs> all right so the last word on this goes to Maria R I didn't coordinate with the others, Antonella, I'm sorry. <laughs> so um, I also am going to say Washington Black and for none of the reasons that anyone else has stated. Uh, so I'm a very character-driven reader and um, this is a very plot-driven book for me. So I found Wash kind of hard to believe in a way because he uh, very much illustrates, I think, the narrator's language. Like he's supposed to come from this place where he doesn't have an education, but then he uses words like I wrote them down: unconscionable, incandescent, leadenly, disconsolate. It, I, I found it hard to believe that a character without um, an education would use those words so casually, because regular people don't, even people with a very high education. And that is the only reason. Um, but that that's essentially my vote. I'm so sorry. I kind of wish I'd asked other people who they were voting for so that we didn't pile up on you like this. I feel piled up on, yes. All right. Okay, audience, uh, now it's your turn. We're gonna open the floor to questions. You can write your question in the chat or the Q&A box or raise your Zoom hand and we can unmute you uh, so we can hear your question. It's also time to start casting your vote. And while we wait to see if there are any questions, we're gonna ask anyone, everyone uh, to cast their votes determining which book
best fits this year's theme of one book to connect us. So that's the theme. Um, was it Jennifer, Life in the City of Dirty Water, which is the, the memoir? Mairead's book, Five Little Indians? What Strange Paradise by Omar el Akkad, Washington Black, defended by Antonella, and Scarborough, Maria Luisa. So um, we're going to see if we have any questions um, about the books. Uh, these are all available at the library. Um, I think Mairead can tell us uh, there are some that are available digitally. Um, I believe... Are they all available on Overdrive or some of them? Do you know? What they should all be available on Overdrive. And I know Five Little Indians is available on Hoopla in audiobook. Um, but yeah, they should all be available on Overdrive. There was something else on Hoopla, but I'm, I can't remember which one it was. So uh, if, if people are um, not, you know, want to access it digitally, those are resources are available as well. Okay. So we're going to give people a little bit of a uh, little bit more time to um, post a question or raise their hand. Um, just to let everybody know, the actual CBC debates are taking place uh, um, the week March 28 to 31. And they're on, it's going to be on CBC Radio 1, CBC Listen, CBC TV, CBC Gem, or, and on CBC Books. I'm sorry, I don't have the times when I uh, check the website. They had not posted the schedule yet, but uh, um, no doubt uh, any of those will, some of those will also be available later on a podcast or um, uh, at your convenience. All right. Um, so we've got some people voting. Somebody's asking how you vote. Well, just the same way you wrote down your question, you can write in the box, I vote for. Okay. So we're getting some yeah, you can put the title, you vote by putting the title on the chat. All right, there we go. Okay, so somebody's coming in. Now, I have to say I read all five books um, and I did enjoy them. I did enjoy them. And I, what I thought, what I enjoyed most about some of the books is not necessarily where, which would win one book to connect us all because I did very much enjoy um, Washington Black. And like Antonella, I thought, I'm waiting for the sequel. She kind of, as you said, at the end, you're saying, but what happens to him? I want to know what happens in the rest of Washington's life, because he's had such sort of an epic um, life to this, this point. He wasn't that old a, a man when we leave him. And it just seems like she might have, hopefully she might have another book in her and, and uh, revisit him at some point in the future. Um, I have to say the memoir is, I think it's very hard when they put up a memoir against, uh, fiction, uh, novels. It's, it's really makes it difficult for people to, to choose. All right. So we're getting some votes coming in. I would like to have a few more. We'll give everybody a little bit more time. I can uh, just respond to you for a second, Lisa. Yes, it is. Yeah. When you have nonfiction, I think people tend to tend to think, oh, you know, it's going to be this big weighty tome. And he talks about environmentalism and all his work and, and everything. And I just sort of want to point out the book again, if people are um, tuning in live. Um, it is actually, surprisingly, an, a very small book. It's like, uh, in terms of pages, it's about 200, 223 pages. And it actually was 
very easy to read. It was actually, it flowed very nicely and didn't go on and on and on about uh, a lot of the environmental stuff. It was presented in a way that people could understand it. Sometimes with nonfiction, you get a tendency to be a little bit lost in all the the, the facts that people are trying to put down onto paper. And that doesn't happen here. There's a nice blend of the facts with his, his life. Right. Um, well, I mean, I learned I was, you know, there's some facts in there about, let's say, the tar sands and their impact on the communities there that I was not quite aware of. Um, and so, you know, given the discourse of getting oil to markets and, you know, moving to a, a non-oil future and, and how fast and how we should do that, um, he brought up some very interesting points that, you know, I wasn't previously necessarily um, aware of. Um, all the books were, were, were easy, fast reads. They, they all um, flowed smoothly. And just on a personal note, um, I'd like to maybe, I don't know if CBC will hear any of this, but I think they should uh, maybe next year have something like one book to give us hope, one book to make us laugh, one book to uplift us. These books are one book to connect us. They're important themes, but um, maybe we can use a little levity these days. And uh, that would be my suggestion to the CBC. All right, so where are we? Okay, so do we have a count? Are we able to, um, we're just getting votes. And no, somebody gave us a compliment, thank you. Um, no real questions. Um, There's a question uh, in the Q and A, Lisa. Uh, sorry. Uh, okay, there is a question. There's a question. See. Where is the movie Scarborough available? Do you know Maria? The the book is available in the library. As no, no, the movie. They're hoping to. Ah, the movie. Not yet. It, it, I'm sorry, I did not hear the whole question. Um, the movie only in Toronto has been played. Not here yet. It will come. In the, I think the following month, the next month. So soon. And I believe um, Sterling K, I, I can't think of his last name. Uh, the gentleman, the actor from This Is Us has optioned uh, Washington Black. And I believe he's going to uh, make a film of that. I don't know what where it'll appear, if it's like a movie or a, more of a Netflix thing. I really don't know, but I did see that. It's going, sorry to interrupt. It seems that okay. that movie Scarborough may be a good one to watch. Um, she received, the, the, the author received a Canadian Screen Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. And uh, so, uh, and some of the children who acted also were nominated. I don't mm -hmm. remember now right. exactly. Right. And another thing about these books, not necessarily happy, but I found there was, you know, Five Little Indians ended on sort of a, a more hopeful note. Um, I guess that's uh, our wishes as to having, you know, a happy ending. Um, the others, yes, I mean, uh, the author of um, Clayton Thomas Mueller, his life, he was able to turn his life around some, from some pretty dire beginnings and, and the path he was taking. And he managed to, to you know, um, turn his life around and he's hoping, you know, raise his children in, in, in a way so that he breaks the cycle of, of the problems that affected him. Um, all right. 
I think it was truly remarkable for someone in their uh, early to mid 20s to have turned their life around and done as much as he's done at really high levels uh, in politics. I mean, it, it, when I think about what I was doing in my mid 20s, it certainly wasn't that. And I, I thought that was so impressive, so, so impressive because the first part of the book is so heavy and, and heart wrenching. Uh, I was really, truly impressed with his his drive and his commitment to say, um, I recognize I'm in a bad place. This is not great. And I really need to change it. And and he did. He did. Okay. All right. So, um, Jennifer, I think. Yeah, I don't think we have any more voting. I no. think it's uh, it looks like. Uh, I don't know, Maureen, it looks like you're about to steal. Hold on, we're getting close. I'm just counting um, <laughs> one more. So I did like want to add also that uh, Five Little Indians has been optioned for a limited series. Um, so it's going to come to television. Okay, so we had a comment from somebody. Actually, I felt every book was very heavy and at this time would have liked to have something easier on our lives right now. Four of the books seem timely to me, Indigenous Black, and have, uh, have to read them. Um, read the books before I can really judge. She's right. Yeah. Okay. So I, ooh, Jennifer, I think I counted a tie. Did you count a tie between? Between Maria and uh, Maria. Arboro and Five Little Indians. Uh, let me recount because I thought Maria had just, uh, had just stolen the lead from <laughs> Maria mm -hmm. Louisa. According to my count, I have stolen it. Yes. That's I think what I'm I, ahead by one. Yes, that's what I have too. <laughs> All right. So I think we're going to give this to Marae this year. So Five Little Indians was the book, one book to connect us all, according to our wonderful audience out there. So next year, we'd hope to see you in person. Um, and uh, thank you for joining us. I did want to mention that next Wednesday evening, uh, March the 16th at 7 p.m., uh, we have a Zoom program uh, featuring Catherine Searle, uh, the author of One Italian Summer. So that should be wonderful. And I'm pointing out it's 7 o'clock, not 2 p.m. So please do join us then. And thank you so much for joining and tuning in today. We hope to see you next year in person. Thank you. Thank you to everyone. Bye. Bye. -bye. Thank, you. Bye. 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 thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.